Welcome to Hong Kong Business Owners. I'm Carmen, founder of this podcast that shares inspiring stories from entrepreneurs based in Hong Kong. Whether you created your own business, thinking about doing so, or simply curious to discover business creation stories, you'll get to listen to unique business owners' journeys to learn what it takes to start a company, what the keys to success are, how to apprehend failures and challenges, and what to keep in mind when developing your own business. I hope each episode will inspire you and guide you in your current or future projects. Today in this new episode of Hong Kong Business Owners, I welcome Nils Pill, co-founder of Aoki Labs. Aoki Labs is building the PoseMesh, a universal spatial computing protocol for the next 100 billion devices, people and AI. They're essentially building a positioning service to replace the GPS and enable digital devices to truly understand the real world. Hi, Nils. Hey, how are you doing? Thanks for having me. I'm good. How are you? I'm very good, thank you. It's, uh, it's been a productive and exciting week so far. I'm happy to get an opportunity to just sit down and chat. Well, so far it's Wednesday, so the week is still... You still have a lot to do, I guess, in the... Next two days? Uh, Hong Kong is a busy city. Spatial computing is a busy industry. So between those two, there's always a lot to do. (laughs) I guess so. Um, So Aoki Labs isn't your first, the first company you created. That's right. Um, And before that, if I'm not mistaken, you founded Train Tracks. That's true. I remember what you told me. Um, And you were living in Beijing at that time. Yeah. Um, so my qu- my first question is living in Asia because you're from uh, Sweden. I'm still 100% right. Um, so living in Asia and being a business owner uh, was it something you had planned, or is it related to opportunities that came arises in your life? In 2009, I quit my job and took a sabbatical. This is a long time ago. In my early 20s, I took a sabbatical, like a lot of people in their Mm -hmm. early 20s do. And at the time, I had a long-distance girlfriend living in Boston, and she was American-born Chinese. And she wanted to visit China for the first time. I was having a sabbatical, so I thought, why don't I come along, and why don't I study a semester of Chinese? I was very interested in learning new languages at the time. I was using some early language learning app and I had this idea that I'm going to learn to speak Japanese and Arabic and Russian and Chinese, you know, because I was on a sabbatical and I I had crazy ideas. And I thought, okay, let's go, let's go to China and try it out. Do you speak Russian, Arabic and... Absolutely not. (laughs) Absolutely not. So what happened was I came to China and already in the cab ride from the airport, I fell in love with the city. I found it so fun and exciting to try to learn new Chinese characters. See, like, how many can I figure out just from reading road signs? And I grew up reading science fiction and and playing computer games. And there was something about the vibe of Beijing that just felt so familiar with the fantasy worlds that I grew up with. And 
as I started being involved with the startup ecosystem there, and I realized how many people from all over China and all over the world had come to Beijing to make something of themselves and to build something that could have an impact on history, I just got hooked. I got convinced very quickly that this is the Asian century and that cities like Beijing and Shanghai and Hong Kong are going to be the most important cities in the world in the 21st century. And I remember telling my mom, you know, trying to explain why do I want to stay. I felt like, well, you know, I feel like Europe is at the end of its history and Asia is in a way just beginning. Even though there's this long, long history, there are these new geopolitical circumstances that is going to transform the whole world over just the next few decades. And looking back, you know, 2009 was not that long ago. But China has grown so much, and so much has happened, and so much innovation is happening here. Uh, but when I go home to my hometown in Sweden, things are exactly the way I left them. So、yeah. I think I made the right choice coming、yeah. here. <laughs> so how long did you live in in Beijing, and and then what brought you to Hong Kong? So I stayed seven years in Beijing.、Oh, okay. uh, Much longer than my girlfriend's. Yeah,、age. I was about to ask the question. <laughs> <laughs> She left and I stayed. I was、uh, I was very much in in love with Beijing and everything that happened there. And I used to make visa runs to Hong Kong,、uh, as a lot of Beijingers do. I used to travel on the overnight train, a twenty four hour train, and stay at a hostel in Chungking Mansion, the cheapest lodging you can find. And the goal was always to do make a round trip. In under a thousand renminbi,、uh, because startup life is tough.、Uh, <laughs> me and my、uh, other startup founders that used to do the same thing, we called it traveling CEO class. You know, take the <laughs> overnight train and、uh, and sleep in in Chungking Mansion. And when I eventually left Beijing, I took some time to to travel and think. And then one day, I was at Paris Airport, just about to leave. And a company that had approached me about buying my previous startup, but we we never reached a deal. Called us like, "Hey, what what are you doing? Are you still around? We still want to work with you." And I realized just how much I missed Asia, and how bored I was in Europe. I was like, "I'm in. I'm coming."、Mm-hmm. And I moved to Hong Kong. And had a very different experience of Hong Kong, actually living here and not just being in Chungking Mansion for a visa run, and realized that Hong Kong and the Greater Bay is even more exciting.、Uh, I'm excited to be exploring Asia, you know, at a slow pace. I just went to Tokyo for the first time. Wow! Yeah, I, I mean, I've been in Asia for over ten years. Just went to to Tokyo for the first time. There's so much to, to see here. Oh, just a few weeks ago. Me too. Yeah. In September. Yeah. It's it's amazing. Yeah. And Hong Kong is amazing. And now I have this、uh, deep love and admiration for for Hong Kong as a place on the map and as a place in history.、Mm-hmm. I think、uh, Hong Kong story is really just beginning. That's very inspiring to hear that about Hong Kong. Is it knowing that I I settled here a year ago, and I think it's so. Dynamic because I'm French. I come from Paris, and everything is different here. And I can feel also this、uh, energy. It's very intense. I guess you can really 
be trapped in that intensity if you don't set boundaries. <laughs> but yeah, it's a great place to launch your business, I guess. It's a great place to be a workaholic. And being a workaholic is a good thing to be if you have a startup. Uh, in Hong Kong, very few people will judge you if you say like, oh, I'm still at the office at 10.30. They'll just be like, yeah, okay. Yeah. Uh, whereas if you tell someone in Sweden like, oh, I'm still at the office at 10.30, they'll, they'll judge you, they'll feel sorry for you. Uh, there's less understanding for wanting to do a lot of work. Yeah, yeah. But Hong Kongers get it. There's yeah. a lot of hustle in Hong Kong. And in a way, the city has just been optimized for work. Mm. And I like that. It's fun. Mm. And it's fun to be surrounded by people that expect to work hard and want to work hard. Yeah. Uh, you know, Silicon Valley has this very interesting culture where everyone wants to innovate. And that's very intoxicating and very cool to be in. And the atmosphere we have here where everyone wants to work or, you know, a lot of people want to want to work. It's a different dynamic, but it has a similar kind of outcome. A lot of shit happens in Hong Kong because people just keep pounding it. They just keep mm -hmm. working. And there's an interesting mix between Western and Asian business culture yeah. that makes it very easy to do business here. People are happy to take meetings. It's yeah. so much easier to get to meet yeah. a, a CEO or a board director or something like this in Hong Kong than in Stockholm, for sure. In Stockholm, it's so hard to actually get a meeting with anyone. And the pace is also completely different. Mm -hmm. You know, here you can say like, hey, how about we meet for a drink at 9 p.m. tomorrow? And chances are they'll say yes. Whereas in Sweden, it would be like, how about we have a meeting two weeks from now? Yeah. Or, you know, I'll get back to you in yeah. two weeks about a potential that things just move. And then you lose the momentum. I think it's because of this pace of decision making and this appetite to do hard things that this region has grown so big so quickly. A number I love to share is New York, you know, the greatest city in the West, has over 900 buildings taller than 100 meters. That's a lot. But here in Hong Kong, we have over 4,000. Thousand, what? over four thousand buildings taller than one hundred meters. Really? By the standards of this century, there are no big cities in the West. Let me put it this way: there are more people riding the MTR today than there are people in Los Angeles. Wow! So, by the scale of this century, places like Hong Kong, Shanghai, Beijing is a completely different order, and mm. the difference is only increasing. If we look at New York and its plans, they have plans for five buildings or so that are going to be taller than 40 floors over the next few years. But today, right now in Shenzhen, there are over 20 construction sites for buildings like that. So the gap is widening and widening. Things are happening so fast uh, in a three hour radius on land from where we are. You know, just taking trains and taxis is maybe 75, 80 million people. It's crazy. Yeah, crazy. Yeah. Um, And going back to that guy who messaged you when you were at the, the Paris airport, what, how did things happen? Because it, is it with that guy that you started Oki Labs? And how did you start that? No, he was my boss for a while uh, oh, until right. he fired me. <laughs> when he fired me, I started a company focused on making augmented reality for the tabletop game Warhammer a uh, little bit of a lifestyle startup. I thought this could be a nice 
business, you know, not venture scale, not a Silicon Valley startup. But I was very naive. I didn't know how hard augmented reality is. I was like, ah, how hard can it be? You know, I've been doing tech for a long time. How hard can it be? It's very hard. And the reason it's very hard is because, well, if you want to do augmented reality for a competitive game like Warhammer, then people need to be able to see the same thing. Mm -hmm. They need to be able to see the same information. And for the digital devices to be able to see the same information in the same place, they need to have a shared understanding of where they are. And the GPS doesn't actually provide that. GPS is a very imprecise positioning technology. Like if you were to open your Google Maps right now, yeah. it probably doesn't know you're in this building. It yeah. knows you're on this block. And it certainly doesn't know you're sitting in this recording booth with me. So when I realized that, uh, instead of doing the responsible thing and giving up and giving back uh, our investors' money and saying, like, this is way too hard. Knowing that it started with Warhammer. So yeah. it wasn't even for, uh, I mean, it was at least for your own interest at the beginning. It was a passion that was allowed to snowball yeah, okay. uh, <laughs> and discover this big civilization scale problem that we have, yeah, which yeah. is that digital devices don't understand the physical world. And now, if you look carefully, you can notice that spatial computing is actually one of the biggest tech endeavors out there. Uh, all of the major tech companies, Apple, Google, Microsoft, all of them are spending billions and billions of dollars every year on mm -hmm. spatial computing because there is a, I don't want to say a belief, I think I want to say there's a realization that the next big change in not just human-computer interaction, but also human-to-human -human interaction is shared augmented reality. With shared augmented reality, we can express ourselves in much more powerful ways than we've been able to before. One of my great inspirations, uh, the late, great Terence McKenna, uh, who was this uh, psychedelics proponent who was very excited about uh, the collision of psychedelics and the internet, he, he said once that civilization can only grow at the bandwidth that its language allows. Uh, kind of a spin on, mm. you know, like the Wittgensteinian idea that the limits of my language is the limits of my world. And I realized after two years working on this Warhammer thing that if you can crack uh, digital positioning and make that really work, then you can have shared augmented reality. Then you can have these new communication streams. You can actually build out the language stack of humanity and build what I believe is the second to last train stop in the history of human communication. The last destination would, of course, be direct neural communication. But the only stop between where we are now and direct neural communication is for you to be able to manifest your knowledge and imagination directly in my visual feed, right? If you can make me literally see what you mean, if you can make me see what you mean, that's as close as we can get to a direct neural interface. And when I realized that, you know, that was a goosebumps realization. <laughs> yeah. It's like, I'm in, I'm in, let's do this. Uh, and of course, uh, we were given an opportunity to do that because after two years of toiling away at this Warhammer thing, we made an invention, a big breakthrough in how to do positioning. Uh, so then we pivoted away from making Warhammer apps to let's actually make a protocol out of this invention and throw our hat in the ring and compete with Google and Apple and Microsoft 
uh, realizing that Hong Kong is maybe the perfect place to do that, mm-hmm. because Hong Kong has a greater need for positioning than any Western city. Also, it's so easy to get lost in these complex 3D urban environments. Everyone's been lost in Elements or in Harbor City or in Pacific Place or just TST subway station. And as a result, we find that when we show our technology to Asian investors, they think about things like ooh. Indoor navigation, ooh, drone delivery, ooh, things like this,、mm. right? But when we show it to Western investors, they're like, "Oh, I guess it's for gaming."、Uh, like the imagination has been stunted in the American investor psyche by living in this car-based economy. You know, California is one and a half floors tall. You know, they don't really build, build skyscrapers the way we do now or here. And、uh, GPS is fine for car-based. Navigation, but completely useless when you're trying to find our office from the subway station.、Um, so I'm convinced that Hong Kong is going to be the first city in the world where a large percentage of the population are wearing AR glasses because I think the everyday utility is much bigger here.、Mm-hmm. You're not going to wear AR glasses all day to play Pokemon Go. That's not why. You're going to wear AR glasses every day if it helps you find what you're looking for, if it helps you communicate with your colleagues, if it helps you communicate with your family. That's when, while you you'll wear them. I think that augmented reality is the future of language, and that language is the past of augmented reality.、Uh, mm-hmm. A very easy way to illustrate that, you know, I I like to make the claim that augmented reality is actually the oldest technological project that humanity has. How would I defend such a claim? Well, if we were to imagine that we were walking through a forest and we came across a fallen tree, and I pointed at that fallen tree and I say, "Hey, look at that beautiful couch." As soon as I've described it as a couch, you can see the sittingness of the fallen tree. I've actually changed your perception of the scene.、Mm-hmm. You see the world differently, and I maintain that's what language is for. Actually, language is the technology that we use to manifest our knowledge and imagination in the minds of others. It's literally augmented reality, and that's why、uh, augmented reality—the way we think about it now—you know, digital manifestations in our visual field in physical space—is an unstoppable evolution of language. It's—it happens in every universe. You know, like. As soon as humans invent the internet, they're going to invent internet porn. It's just what humans do. And as soon as they invent spatial computing, they will in- invent augmented reality. It's just what humans do.、Um, I think it's inevitable. There's no the only future where we don't have augmented reality as one of our main communication methods is a world where civilization didn't make it that far. Yeah.、Um, all right. Well, that's a very Inspiring way of also how how you describe language, and if we go back to Aoki Labs, what exactly do you provide? And I'm interested in knowing who your clients are.、Um, is it do you provide different solutions according to the different industries, or can you explain a bit more about that? So Aoki Labs is divided into two legal entities. Um, and one legal entity is concerned with building the positioning protocol, 
and it provides an SDK that anyone can use to make applications that make use of the positioning protocol. So that arm does not provide any applications. It just provides a protocol. But we have a separate entity that also does business under the name Alkylabs, but it's a separate legal entity. We just share the brand Alkylabs together. That entity makes applications built on the protocol. And what our focus is right now is building tools for retailers in specific, because we realize that uh, retailers have a lot of communication issues that can be resolved through spatial computing and a lot of training issues that can be resolved through spatial computing. So, uh, for example, when you visited our office today and you came into our demo space, this fake grocery store that we built, I showed you our spatial note-taking system where a colleague had left a note for me saying that there's a thing that needs to be fixed in the demo store. And because we have this precise positioning, it can navigate me to the note. Like, oh, there's an issue in the store. This and this thing has to be fixed. And it can show me exactly where that is. Mm -hmm. And that's a lot more powerful than a text description or a photo description. Yeah. Uh, putting digital information in its correct physical space is an enormous communication mm -hmm. hack. Um, and it helps onboard new staff. It makes it easier to spend less time on each task. It's a huge time and effort saver for retail staff. And one day, we think it's also going to be a way to really transform the shopping experience when shoppers themselves also get to ask questions about where is this product, etc. Mm -hmm. Like if you think about it, when you go and shop on e-commerce, your behavior is very different from when you go shopping in a mall. In e-commerce, the behavior is search-oriented. Like you write down something you're looking for, and you will know immediately if they have it or not. But when you walk into a grocery store, looking for quinoa. You don't know if they have it or not. And you're going to have to walk around and look and after a while decide do they have it or not. And if you decide that they don't have it and you leave, the store never learns what it was you were looking for. But in e-commerce, they always know what you were looking for. If you search for quinoa in, on an e-commerce platform and a lot of people search for quinoa, they can add it to, to, their, uh, to their list of items. But physical stores can't do that because they don't know what you're looking for. And small things like this, I think, result in e-commerce growing you know, 200 300% faster than physical retail every year. Because search, intent-based browsing, is so powerful compared to the wander around looking for things of physical retail. But also when you wander around, I mean, it's annoying if you can't find what you're came looking for, but it's also maybe an opportunity to buy other stuff that you didn't need. Sure, but I think we do more impulse purchases in e-commerce than in mm. physical stores. And the reason why is we actually are exposed to more. It's like this. Okay, when you walk through the street, you see more men technically than you will see on Tinder. But on Tinder, right, as you swipe through them, It's like, it's this guy, it's this guy, it's this guy, it's this guy. The product discovery on Tinder is better than it is on a bar, actually, even though there may be more people in the bar. It's not just, is it physically close to me? It is, did I pay attention to it? Mm -hmm. And e-commerce guides how many products you pay attention to. And a physical retail store has a tough time doing that, yeah. uh, which is why I think 
people do more spontaneous purchases on e-commerce sites than they do in physical stores. A lot of people actually, you know, when we encounter skeptics that say like, oh, this is not going to be helpful for the shopper, they often say things like, I'm always buying the same items. I know where they are. I don't need your help to find them. Mm. Exactly. You don't have a lot of discovery in the grocery store. You've been reduced to this automated, habituated behavior because it is so hard to discover new things. But when we go buy things on e-commerce, it's not yeah. habit, it's discovery and joy. Uh, yeah. And I think we can bring that to physical retail mm -hmm. uh, by making the physical retail more personalized, more exciting. Mm -hmm. So spatial computing, I think, is going to completely change within a couple of years only how we interact with retail locations with personalized recommendations, improved discovery, improved search. Yeah, it reminds me of um, a documentary I saw years ago now. It was about the Amazon cart in their shops, like a bit like you, like um, to experience the and test this cart, like very techy cart. And actually, I remember that it takes all the data of what products you touch, you look at, how long, how many seconds, what do you put in your cart or remove or where do you stop in the store and it records everything and is it, it's a bit like that. It's a bit what you are talking about. I think there are many ways to try to improve the shopping experience with digital data. Our focus is not on collecting data about what the the shopper does, yeah. but rather putting information in a place where it's actionable. So we don't do things like track where people look and how they're walking mm. around. We're much more excited in doing things like, well, since we already know or the store already knows that you like oat milk, let's make sure you see a recommendation for oat milk. And not only that, it'll guide you straight to it. So if this is something that you're interested in doing, we can increase the likelihood of you adding it to your basket. Because adding something to basket in e-commerce, that's one click. But adding something to basket in physical retail means finding it physically and putting it physically in your basket. But how, it's how concretely, for example, I'm in a, a shop and with your solution or your app, I can find what I'm looking for, like chocolate. How exactly does it work? Is it like the app telling me something? I mean, yeah, the app can make recommendations. So one of the and then it guides me where Yeah, it can okay. guide you. So one of the things that we're working on now in our lab is uh, GPT based assistance for shopping. So, you know, you walk into the store and you tell the app, oh, my husband really wants me to make a bolognese tonight. Right. And it will recommend, oh, you should get these ingredients then. It's like, oh, yeah, that sounds great. Can you make me a picking list and a picking route? And it'll just guide you through the store to pick the items the fastest path possible. And it can make some recommendations like, hey, if you're making bolognese, wouldn't it be nice to have some Parmesan? Yeah, it would be nice to have some Parmesan. Because now the store understands what it is you're trying to do, and it can give you better recommendations. Okay. Um, random question. Um, where does the name Aoki Labs come from? I'm intrigued. Aoki is an old Norse word. Yeah, I was, I, was, I was sure it was something related to that region. There is a poem so old 
that it has survived in three different languages. The Old Norse Norwegian rune poem, the Anglo-Saxon rune poem, and the Icelandic rune poem. And the rune poem is a poem to help you remember the Futhark. The Futhark is the old runic alphabet. So the poem is kind of like A is for apple, B is for banana kind of thing. But what's different with the Futhark compared to our alphabet is that it's phonetic, but also it's pictographic. So each letter in the Futhark has a pictographic representation. And in this poem, on the line for the letter M, the line is Mader er moldar auki. And what that means is man is an augmentation of dust or dirt. The word auki means to augment or to do everything or to do something with all of your might, like to really do something. So mader er moldar auki can be interpreted two ways. Either man is magical dirt, right? Kind of like the biblical, you know, God blew life into dirt, right? Or humanity is what matter becomes when it auki, when it does everything it can. The ultimate form of matter is humanity. And the idea that humanity is more than just our matter, it's also our culture, it's also our language, was something that really resonated with me. So I named the company Auki mm. to represent that language is something on top of matter that mm. makes us human. Wow. I'm, I'm glad I asked that question. It's a, a fun way to consume this poem. And the way I discovered the poem, actually, is there's this band I enjoy listening to at the gym. They're called Heilung, H-E-I-L-U-N-G. But what's fun is they don't write their own lyrics. They're always singing things from archaeological finds. And one of their songs, they're just singing the Norwegian rune poem. And I was just so fascinated with this, this so poem cool. and how holy it must have been. Mm. And yeah, so you started, you founded this uh, company in 2021? Kinda. We legally, we started in 2019 with the Warhammer thing. Uh, then it was just me uh, and uh, a guy named Andy, our very first employee, still with us today, uh, with a couple of other contributors throughout the years. But in 2021, we invented something and pivoted and went from being the Warhammer app studio to becoming Alki Labs. Mm -hmm. And as part of that pivot, uh, I brought on two co-founders to help become this bigger Company. Yeah, I wanted to I, I wanted to ask you about your co-founders and also you told me that you grew from like two people to 45 at some point. Mm -hmm. So I have a, like two questions on that. Um, so when at what time of your business did you start hiring people um, and how also do you hire people to make sure, you know, you keep the same the same values, the same atmosphere, the same business, the same company culture. Um, and the second one is related to that is that as if you as you grow fast, how do you make sure you keep sort of control on things? Um, and also if you have co-founders, I guess 
you have chosen them very well because it's like this this is like marriage like to have co-founders um so also how do you share your vision all together and how yeah you do you keep control on the the direction towards which your business grows we try to be a memetic engineering company uh, meme theory for those that don't know is this idea that natural selection acts on behavior and information just like evolution acts on genes and the fittest genes will reproduce the most the idea with meme theory is that a, a meme is like a, a unit of behavior or information that can be copied and information and behavior will also be subjected to natural selection uh, so what is a good meme a good meme is one that can survive being copied right so as an example i will get to the hiring thing but as an example when we raised our money in 2021 instead of putting together a traditional deck with the mm -hmm. format that investors expect as a memetic engineering company instead what we wanted to do is we want to construct a narrative that can be retold by the investor because if the investor investor can retell this story then he will tell other investors he will tell his investment committee uh, he will be able to brag to a girl at the bar and this will make him feel excited actually and this is also how we think about maintaining culture in our company and it's not not easy there have been many times where we failed especially as a remote company it can be very hard to make sure that people get the the right information mm -hmm. get the right amount of companionship get the right amount of stimulation but we went from two people to 60 in a two-year period now we're back down to 45 because we realized actually that we were growing too fast and our culture was suffering and it was hard for us to really onboard people and give them a meaningful thing to do because yeah our culture wasn't growing as fast uh, as the company was so now we're taking a step back and honing our narrative and making sure that we can talk to each other in a way that we understand and explain our mission to each other in a way that we understand and our technology to each other in a way that we understand so it's easy to bring in new people but how how did you realize that when you were up to like 60 people and then you took a step back or you just took some time to think about okay what's going on something's not right What exactly did something happen? I realized that there was a correlation between the employees that were struggling the most to be productive and the employees that couldn't articulate what it is we do. Uh, the people that could articulate what it is we do and were excited about what it is we do because they understand it, they were more productive. And that made me realize that we have a culture problem. We have a communication problem. There are people that aren't exposed to our narrative enough to really be onboarded and find meaning in what they're doing, and that makes it hard to be productive. So yeah, that correlation between not being very productive and not knowing how to confidently talk about what we do uh, was the, the realization. Yeah. And what's your focus today? Because you're, you're one of the co-founder So I guess you do a bit of management or, but do you, are you still involved in really 
hands-on projects? I try to be as hands-on as possible. I think management is where lazy people go to hide, especially in a startup. Startups don't need management. They need work. And there's a lot of work that needs to be done. The first people to go, actually, as we started downsizing the company, were a bunch of managers. Um, because those managers, you know, didn't have any craft. They didn't have anything that they were doing, doing uh, mm. every day. So we're always trying to reduce the number of meetings and reduce the amount of management and instead focus on making sure that we have a team of motivated people that really understand what it is we're trying to do and feel a connection with that purpose so that they would drive it forward without management. Your need for management is a function of how poorly you've onboarded your staff. The better you onboard your staff, the less management you need. And I think the kind of person that is drawn to management instead of actually doing the work is probably a person that can't do the work. Startups don't need management. They need a lot of hands-on doing. So I spend my time writing. I spend my time communicating. I spend my time going on podcasts, uh, doing software architecture, things that just need to be done. Mm. Um, and the more I get to actually work work and the less I have to do management, yeah. uh, the better I sleep at night knowing yeah. that we actually yeah, moved yeah. forward today. Yeah. And that's a good transition moving forward. How do you see the company growing in the future? Do you have, I guess you have long-term plans, long-term vision? Um, and also, are you planning on, or maybe it's already the case, uh, growing outside of Hong Kong? We've already oh. grown outside of Hong Kong. Uh, around half of our team is in Europe. Okay. Uh, only a third of us, roughly, are here in Hong Kong, maybe a little bit more, uh, since we cut down on some staff. But, you know, a third to half of us are in, in Hong mm -hmm. Kong and, and Asia, and the, the rest are in Europe uh, with one poor guy uh, alone in America. <laughs> hey, Jeff, if you're listening, miss you. Um, and we are now piloting our applications with international retailers, and our goal is to get into 100,000 locations in the next three years. And the reason we think we can do that is because how easy it is to set up the system. Uh, we are trying to prove to the world that this system can be set up by the local staff at the grocery stores. They don't need us to come visit. Mm. And if we successfully demonstrate this, then getting into 100,000 locations is actually just getting into two or three handful of the large word, uh, world's largest retailers. Some of the people we're piloting with now have several thousand stores worldwide. And there are, you know, in, in Europe, I think there's five that have over 10,000 locations each. In the U.S., there aren't as many as many retailers. They have bigger stores instead. And here in Asia, there are also many chains with thousands, even tens of thousands of locations. And we are focusing on those big international retailers, uh, trying to price ourselves very cheap and very easy to install so that we can have a scale economy. At 100,000 locations, only charging you know, two, three hundred dollars per month per store, which we think is very little compared to the amount of value we provide to the staff, that would still be hundreds of millions of dollars per year. So we think 
because spatial computing represents such a, a big advancement in productivity and communication uh, that we can go from, from zero to a quarter billion in around a, a three-year period. And that's what we're, that's what we're working on. Yeah. And I was wondering what's the, because you, you talked a lot about Hong Kong. Um, what's the tech landscape look like here in Hong Kong? Is it, and also maybe more precisely, spatial computing? Mm. Um, are there other companies that do that? Um, what's it like? We have several competitors here in Hong Kong, which is exciting. Hong Kong is known very much for its fintech, mm -hmm. but that's changing, thank God. Uh, <laughs> I, I think fintech is very, very boring, my apologies. <laughs> um, but spatial computing, a big part of spatial computing is computer vision, for example. And a lot of the world's greatest computer vision researchers are Chinese and or from Hong Kong. Um, there are many great computer vision researchers here in Hong Kong, both in the industry and in academia, and as well in, in Shenzhen and the Greater Bay Area. And of course, Shenzhen and the Greater Bay Area also has unparalleled expertise in hardware manufacture. So I think the combination of having some of the world's best computer vision people, having the most complex urban environment in the world, and the most proficient hardware capabilities in the world is a perfect recipe for why Hong Kong will be the epicenter of spatial computing. Uh, I think the next trillion dollar company will be a spatial computing company. I think they will be in Hong Kong. And as I, I like to tell my, my colleagues, you know, if this is the decade and this is the technology and this is the place, then hopefully we're the people, you know, like yeah. let's, let's do yeah. this. There's, yeah. a, there's a huge historical opportunity, like capital H historical opportunity to help transition humanity into its next language operating mm -hmm. systems. And now the next big leap, which I believe might be the most important leap we've made so far, the transition to putting digital information in physical space, because yeah. that's also what will allow our artificial intelligences and robots to understand the physical world around us. Today, ChatGPT is amazing, but it lives on the internet and it only understands the internet. If you want a spatial GPT that's out in the world understanding the world that you're in, you need spatial computing. And this is what Microsoft, Apple, etc., knows. Mm -hmm. All right, this brings us to the last question. Do you have any, any tips to share to current business owners or people who think about running their own business but might still be afraid of this taking the leap? Do you have anything to tell them? Since we have an English-speaking audience here, uh, I want to give the strong recommendation to leave Hong Kong Island often. <laughs> uh, there is a historical hang-up with Hong Kong Island because of Hong Kong's long colonial history. And there's a tendency with the expat community and the English-speaking community to never leave the area between Causeway Bay and Shenwan. Um, in fact, I meet a lot of Hong Kong entrepreneurs that have never been to Saikung, that never go to the dark side. <laughs> and if you don't, you're missing out because the Chinese, the mainland Chinese, have no such historical hang-up about Hong Kong Island. And the center of gravity is shifting a lot. 
and a lot of the Chinese money and Chinese competence that is coming into Hong Kong are not in Hong Kong Island. So if you limit yourself to Hong Kong Island, you will fail to recruit a lot of the best talent, and you will fail to meet a lot of the most impactful investors and most meaningful clients that you can find. I think over the next couple of years, we'll realize that Hong Kong Island really is just the party district and not the business district. And we see more and more that the big Asian opportunities uh, are better found in places like TST and Olympic and Kuntong and here in Kowloon Bay. And another piece of advice is make use of how easy it is to do networking here and how eager the Hong Kong government is to make Hong Kong live up to its potential. Uh, organizations like Invest Hong Kong will help you a lot. They, they really, really will. Uh, that's a rare opportunity. There's a lot of government funding that you can get, a lot of government support that you can get. And at least on the Kowloon side of Hong Kong, there's a business culture that is very, very accessible and excited to do work and a little bit further from the fintech. <laughs> so if you're not a fintech entrepreneur and you're building something for sustainable energy or whatever, you know, something that's not fintech, uh, allow yourself to go explore the greater bay. Yeah. yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, for the expat business owners and expat people who listen to us, I think it's a very good advice because it's so easy to be tempted to stay in this comfort zone. It's a lovely comfort zone, yeah, yeah, yeah. but it's no longer where most of the business happens. Yeah. Thank you so much, Nils, for your time. It was a pleasure to go through all this uh, augmented reality. Um, I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did because it was really inspiring. Um, so if people want to find out more about Aoki Labs, where should they go? They can go to aokilabs.com or follow us on Twitter. And if you really want to nerd out about the future of positioning, you can go to postmesh.org. And, uh, of course, you can come visit us in Kowloon Bay. We're in the FT Life Tower in Kowloon Bay on the seventh floor. Uh, come visit. Cool. Well, I'll add all these links um, in the description of the episode. I hope you are inspired by today's business story. And if you're thinking about running your own business, you might now be one step closer to doing so. See you in two weeks for a new business owner's story and don't forget to leave me five stars to support me and follow me on instagram at hk.businessowners bye